What opportunities does commercial real estate offer for the average Australian investor? Where do you start with assessing both the risks and the performance? And what type of investor is best suited to investing in commercial property? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Commercial property investing is a very different beast to residential real estate and today we're going to explore some of the key aspects you need to consider if you're thinking about joining the big league. Joining us is Stuart Weems, a financial planner with an evidence-based investment philosophy and a really good understanding of property. I was recently listening to his two-part Investopoly podcast episode on commercial property and it prompted us to invite him along to talk about the pros and cons and pitfalls. And this isn't the first time we've interviewed Stuart. You can go back to episodes 39, 126 and 162 if you want to hear more from him. Welcome, Stuart. It's great to be talking to you again. Hey guys, back! Great to be back with you, Stuart. Always good to chat. I think from um, you know, ex financial advisor now to a, another financial advisor, I think commercial property is a uh, an interesting conversation, and it's something that is an amazing tool for financial advisors, and it's an amazing tool for people to use to to build wealth and to obviously also to provide income. What's your some of the biggest misconceptions you believe though around commercial property and where it's sort of misused? I think price point. Price point's probably the biggest miscommunication or, or, mis, or, or misinterpretation of how you best use it to build yep. wealth. Uh, and then I think also timing. Uh, so, so you know, where in the investment stage are you and when do you start introducing commercial property? So, to go back to the price point thing, you know, I think one of the things that um, a lot of people find attractive about commercial is the income characteristics, particularly the 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 fact that your tenant pays most of the exp- or maybe all the expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with residential, it can become a bit tiresome when you just keep getting bills month after month, you know, for various things, water rates and maintenance and this and that. Uh, and then people start thinking, well, hang on, maybe commercial's the, the right way to go. So instead of investing half a million dollars in resi, I'll, I'll put it into commercial. But it's a really different animal and it's a different price point. So when you say yes. price point, you're saying the entry <laughs> price that um, where you can get a quality asset. Is that sort of the way you're thinking about that or is it – what do you mean? Yeah, bang on. I mean, I guess if we sit down and think about, you know, what is the minimum we need to spend to get an investment-grade apartment or the minimum we need to spend to get an investment-grade house? And if if either of us sit in front of a client and go, and that client says, look, I want to buy an investment-grade house for $200,000, we're all going to say, no, you're crazy. You're never going to get a quality asset for that, Mark. Uh, and it's the same with commercial. T- to my mind, I mean, it just depends on what market you're looking in. But if I, if I speak to the Melbourne market, uh, my wife and I sold a commercial property uh, in 2020, so a couple of years ago, um, because we were, I mean, the tenant uh, that was a, a tech-funded tenant, uh, gave us a ridiculous offer, much easier to spend other people's money. Uh, and so, we, uh, we we took the opportunity to sell that asset. So, But, but if I think about, you know, a, a replacement asset of similar quality, you know, I need to have a budget of 2 to $3 million in Melbourne to buy that sort of similar quality asset. Uh, and it, look, at the moment, I'm sure we'll get into it. I don't see the value there. But uh, whereas if I think, oh, well, I want to I spend a million dollars on commercial in Melbourne, where am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to be, uh, you know, out in the outskirts of Melbourne. I'm not going to get an investment grade commercial property for that that, that amount. Well, let's quickly just run through the different yeah. types of commercial property that somebody might look at. I mean, you've obviously got, you know, you've got retail, you've got offices, you've got industrial, you've got, you know, even the, the trusts, right? REITs. Yeah. Um, but then there's within each of those general categories, there's, there's different types of properties and you can form syndicates and there's all this sort of creative ways that you can approach it but and I'm a bit alarmed too about this low price point thing you, you hear about it in residential property all the time the affordability drive and so there are people looking for affordable locations with high yield and I would imagine that those cheap 
uh, commercial properties that you're talking about um, would really be appealing to the type of investor that would chase yield. Um, and I imagine there's a huge amount of risk in that. But so let I guess let's pull apart types of properties for starters. Like particularly with your clients, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to know the sorts of properties that individuals would invest in. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's really three categories of commercial. Uh, I mean, every commercial is kind of different, but you could probably just put them into three categories. So retail, uh, retail property like in a, a shopping strip, but it can be a petrol station, it can be a bank, you know, those sorts of things that would I, I would sort of term as uh, put a, a circle around retail. I mean, retail was certainly really popular in the 90s and, and 2000s. And it's a little bit of an ego asset to some degree, you know, oh, look, I own a shop on Chapel Street or, you know, wherever the the, the key shopping strip is uh, in in your neck of the woods. Um, but they tend to be, I and mean, we've all been well informed about what the challenges that retail are going through. Uh, and every retail, you know, every apparel shop now seems to be a cafe or restaurants. And, mm. you know, so there'll be a cycle that'll come out of that as well if it hasn't through already uh, through COVID. Um, uh, but, you know, there's, there's just massive pressure on rental incomes and, and therefore on asset values. So if I had a client that said, look, I want to go into retail, you know, I would really caution them uh, about entering into the market at this time. Uh, commercial is cyclical and I was going to do a blog about this, but um, I think resi is a lot less cyclical than most other investment markets mm. just because it's a necessity. We need yeah. a roof over yeah. our heads. Yeah. Whereas all other markets tend to be quite cyclical and, and commercial is that as well. So um, uh, retail certainly at the bottom end of that cycle, but how long do, will it take to, for us to see growth? Well, we won't really see growth in that market until I think the landlords start having a bit of bit more pricing power. And if you look at some of the the rents they're charging for some of the assets, and you, when you look at you know an apparel shops in there or a cafes in there, like how many coffees do they need to sell? How many t-shirts they need to sell just to cover the rent? Uh, the, the the numbers don't the economics don't always work. So I think there's probably Probably a little bit more fat to be trimmed in that market, and so I would steer away from from retail. There's also, um, and, and this is anecdotal. I don't know if it's the same in your shopping strips in Melbourne, but certainly it's, it's the case in, say, I'll use Balmain as an example. I know I often talk about Balmain; it's where my office is. So, <laughs> and so that's a retail strip. It's a little village. It's you know, it's got a little dynamic. And some years back, we started find, you know, started seeing empty shops. And this happened, Oxford Street, Paddington as well, he's saying the same thing, you know, there's four lease signs. And I would chat to some of the commercial agents around and they were saying, and I would say, what's the deal? You know, it's like and it's like this, this sort of average small size retail shop, a little, you might have a little boutique or something, was around about 3000 a week in rent. And so, like you say, how many T-shirts are you going to sell to be able to cover that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... A lot of these buildings were owned by um, old families. A lot of old Italians, for instance, owned a lot of them, or Greeks or whatever. And they bought them in the 70s for so 30000 or whatever and doesn't owe anything, you know, they've got nothing on it. And they're like, nah, if I'm not going to get my 3000 a week, I'll have you to let it sit there empty for yeah. ages, you know. So then you've got this whole dynamic. Then you had councils trying to re revive these strips to, to try to incentivise and put a tax on them for having vacant shops and all these sort of... You know, so there's there's other dynamics around the, dare I say, unsophisticated owners of other some of these properties. You know, <laughs> in terms of what's going on, and you don't want to actually have a shop that might be successful as you want, but if it's actually your tenant is is in a situation where all the surrounding shops are vacant, like what does that do for your tenant as well? So there's a lot of other factor, risks around that too, right? Yeah, spot on. And it happens in it happens in Melbourne. I can think of Bridge Road. My yeah. wife used to run a retail business and, and a lot of the shops that she used to lease, exactly the same sort of story. You know, they just hang out and they think, I'm not going to compromise and the shop's vacant for three years, which you're right, which is fine for them. It's a decision for them, but it affects all owners in the street um, because it, it, you know, retards the sort of ability of that street to get its vibe back and, you know, attract a certain level of customer and, and foot traffic, etc. Etc. Et so, I think uh, there is so a really interesting point though is that the price of commercial property is very much linked to the rent that mm. that property will receive, you know, and what mm. they can charge um, the tenant basically. And so, if that can't go up, then the price of the property, what you're going to see how to sell it for in the marketplace, 
um, it has to go up, only go up because people are willing to pay a lot more for that money to get a lower yield, which has been the case the last few years because people are saying, well, I know it's only got a 4% yield. I know I would have probably liked to have bought it at a 6 or 8% yield in the past, but because cash is so cheap, I'm going to go and buy it anyway, even though it's a very low yield. But if interest rates are going up um, and then the, the yield conversation becomes you know, less enticing because people say, well, I could get 3% in the bank. Um, why would I go and pay 4% for this retail shop with all these additional risks? Yep, yep, bang on. I think some people that bought assets on really low yields are going to get caught out when interest rates rise. But, you know, the other thing too, Chris, is you can get some growth if there's an alternate use to the property. Mm. So, for example, if and if I think like Bridge Road in Melbourne, in Richmond in Melbourne, uh, you know, if, if you can, uh, if a developer can come and buy four or five shops in a row, uh, then potentially they can demolish and build resi, you know, three or four stories high and then um, commercial downstairs. So, if there's an alternate use, you might get some uplift there. But, you know, yeah. I'm not investing on the basis that that's going to occur. Uh, I think that's pretty risky. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, the second the second uh, category is uh, industrial property. Tends to be, I mean, a lot of people are to do it because it tends to have high yields. Uh, an industrial property for an individual investor typically looks like a, a shed in a in an outer suburb, uh, you know, just an industrial shed that might be used for manufacturing or have a panel shop in it or, you know, those sorts of uh, things. It's just a slab with some walls and a, and a roof on it and maybe an office in it. Um, and the reason why these assets tend to be quite, or, or at least investors are attracted to these assets, is that they tend to uh, sell on quite high yields, uh, 7, 8, 9%. The problem is, however, is you've got one tenant. So you've got that um, real single tenant focus, which I know you've got that in residential too, but then the um, vacancy periods can be much, much longer for yeah, that's the thing. Uh, commercial so you might have it vacant for six months before you find the right tenant and then you've got to offer that tenant a, a, an incentive a rent-free period or whatever so you know you could be without income for 12 months potentially in between tenants but I mean if that doesn't happen well then yes you've got a great income stream but because those assets are located in areas where there's not you know, there's an abundant supply of land typically, you're not going to get much capital growth. Mm. So then the growth for an industrial property is absolutely linked to its income. Uh, so your ability to really increase the rent on the tenant uh, and that tends to only move in line with inflation. So good income asset, uh, but it's it's certainly all income and, and very little growth. Uh, and then you've got that tenant profile risk. And I would prefer... Um, for clients, if clients wanted an asset like that, you know, I think there's other style, income style assets that might work better. Uh, and if I'm going to gear into an asset, so use borrowings to buy it, uh, I really want a combination of growth and income because I want that I want to benefit from that compounding capital growth. So that if nothing else happens over the a 20 or 30 year period, my debt starts to become immaterial. Uh, whereas your debt's always going to be material relative to the value of the asset if all you're getting is income because yep. obviously you're taxing the income and you can bank it and so forth. It's yes. a pretty stressful time that though. Mm. If you say you've got an industrial warehouse, which the price point to get a quality asset is going to be a lot more than a retail shop, right? Cause you're talking a lot of land. Um, well, not necessarily. It could be a strata. There's a lot of those those strata industrial complexes. Yeah. But then let's yep. say you're in that situation. You've got, you lose your tenant. You can't find another tenant. You've got a uh, you know, six months of vacancy, you've got your outgoings you still need to pay, for example. Um, you can't sell it because you haven't got a tenant. You're not going to get what it's worth because mm. you haven't got a tenant and a lease. And, and there's no scarcity because yep. there's heaps and, of other ones. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you've got bank finance, you know, starts to become a bit of an issue. Those contracts, those loans aren't 30-year loans and they'll start saying, well, we haven't got a tenant. Can you give us some more cash? We'll do a margin call on it almost. So, You've got to be really careful um, around vacancy with commercial property because um, that if there's no real income stream, no investor's going to want to buy it. Um, or if they do want to buy it, they want to buy it at a fire sale price. And so you've got to be able to get through those danger zones that can happen at any point. And the price point can be uh, pretty attractive, Chris. I mean, you, you, you will find sometimes developers will go and buy a few acres of land, chop it up subdivide it, build some sheds on there because they're really cheap to construct and easy yeah. con and then sell it to investors for 700000 bucks or something. So it is yeah. an attractive price point. But you're bang on. I think the debt is the thing that you really need to think about. I mean, if you just put all cash into the deal and you had no debt and you took the long-term view to say, okay, over a 10-year period, 
I might have a little bit of vacancy in there, but uh, but nine years out of ten, it's going to be tenanted, and that's the income I'm going to get. Well, you might you might make friends with that. It might be a good proposition, but for most people that are actually borrowing uh, to invest in that asset, I really do want some compounding capital growth uh, to eat away at the 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 debt in real terms. Because that um, all comes down to stage of life, doesn't it? And also how much um, of your asset asset base you already have in other assets yeah. as well. And yeah. so that's where it comes down to what type of investor is is best suited. But I'm jumping ahead because we haven't finished all the different categories of <laughs> no, all good. Well, the last category then is office. Um, and, you know, as the name explains, it's very easy to, um, to to sort of understand that asset. But you're really looking at a building with multiple tenants, um, different uh, area sizes in per tenant. So you've, you've got some larger businesses, some smaller businesses. Uh, and then there's ability, some ability to add value as well. So you, And that sort of asset tends to provide, you know, if you invest in the right asset, tends to provide a combination of both income and capital growth. Uh, and uh, the key component there in terms of value is uh, the weighted average lease period. You know, so, so when you're looking at how, how secure is my income stream, obviously if you've got 20 tenants in a building, they're all, all going to be on different lease terms. Uh, and the longer your weighted average lease period, uh, your, the, the acronym's whale, then that the tends to be the, the lower yield an investor will pay because it's a, a lower risk asset. Um, but of course, if we're looking at office, uh, you know, the only way I would, look, unless you're a, an incredibly wealthy individual, the only way that you're going to invest in office is through a REIT mm. or through, uh, you know, a syndicated style in, uh, of investment. Um, and syndication helps you get into a, a better price point. You know, we're, if we talk about 700000 for a commercial property, there's lots of people that can afford to mm. buy a $700,000 asset. Uh, you know, wealthy individuals, people that borrow, super funds, et cetera, et cetera. But really the, the much tighter price point is really, say, $20 million, which is anything north of 20 millions tends to be just too much of a lumpy asset for most. Uh, and less than say 150, 200 million is too small for an, for an institution. Mm. So that sort of 20 to 150 million is kind of a nice price point because there's fewer buyers out there. You're really probably competing with ultra wealthy individuals or, or foreigners that want to invest money in Australia, um, which is becoming uh, more challenging, of course. So mm. it's not like there's no one in that space, but uh, that, that allows you to get into a space where there is less competition uh, and buy a different style of asset. So you say around the though, stage of life, I mean, that, um, you know, is that on. sort of, yeah, you go then. Oh, no, sorry, I just want to ask about that before we get to stage of life because the problem is if not many people either can afford it or want to buy it because it sort of slips through the cracks, then how does that work for capital growth? Mm. Uh, well, it just means that your entry price, uh, because um, uh, commercial is more cyclical than residential, uh, I would say as a general rule, there's never, I'm, I've always said, as a general rule, there's never a bad time to buy a, a good quality residential asset. Like it, the, the prices trend, have always trended higher over long run mm. um, and, you know, overpaying 5% is never going to kill the yep. investment strategy. Um, because uh, commercial is more cyclical, you might not, you know, you might, it's not necessarily a, a long-term buy and hold strategy. There's going to be a time where the market will overpay for your asset and then there's going to be a time where the market will offer the type of asset that you've got at a discount. So by going in, by having uh, less competition at the beginning allows you, that means that there's more assets to buy that I think are imperfectly priced, mm. you know, that there's something wrong with it or it doesn't appeal to everyone. Yep. If it needs a bit of CapEx, if it needs a bit of love, if it's being mismanaged, if it's being marketed poorly, you know, because the pool of buyers is so thin, uh, it's there's a chance that you'll pick up a deal. Now, of course, it also means because the pool of buyers is so thin uh, that, that when it comes time to sell, it could be that you struggle to get it away. But I guess it comes back to the management and the investment mm. strategy because if, if what you're doing is doing everything possible to maximise its value and make the asset as, as attractive as possible, then arguably you're, you're going to have less uh, less of a challenge. But it is cyclical. So, mm. you know, you've got to kind of pick your mark as well uh, in terms of exiting that investment. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen clients use these syndicated, um, and they are obviously common, you know, great for self and super fund investors, you know, in retiree stage because they're providing a good income. Um, and they can get access to this sort of sweet spot. You know, a lot of accounting practices put these together and then they offer it to their clients. Um, and, you know, it might be 100000 or 200000 buy into this $20 million fund or something. Then they gear up the fund. They get borrow another $20 million or something. Um, yep. And, you know, I mean, what they sometimes do is they buy the unloved building, for example, but they know it's in a great location, tidy it up, manage it better, and then they get a better tenant in there that pays a higher rent on a longer lease. And then they can also resell it. And so, you know, it can work. But, you know, as a punter, you can't really get, you know, you're only getting a small exposure, 100 or 200. Um, you're not going to put all your wealth into to something like that. You, know, you mentioned the price point's a big thing that misunderstood. Um, and I think people sort of apply residential price points into commercials. As mm. I've, I've got 600 to, to spend in resi. I'm just going to go spend 600 in commercial because I think it offers better yield. And that's a super dangerous thing around the price points. But you also said the stage of life. I think this is the biggest mistake I think people make is they forget that they're still young and they've got a lot of earning capacity. They forget that their top tax rate or they're, you know, paying 40% tax and they go for the wrong thing. They go on, you know, trying to get passive income or build an income when they've got no problem with income and they forget that what they're trying to do is build an asset base so mm -hmm. they can get income in the future. And Commercial doesn't work like that. It's, commercial is the thing that you don't want, lots of income when, you know, and the capital growth is limited. Do you think that's the biggest mistake you see? It's just the wrong people um, are signing up to commercial sometimes. Yeah, I think it's uh, just a, a, I mean, they get a bit fatigued with the whole negative cash flow with uh, residential. Um, and okay, you can invest in shares and get dividends. That's nice too. But um, let's look for something better that gives me greater leverage. And, you know, commercial property kind of ticks that box. Mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, the, the analogy I use, it's like teeing off with a putter. You know, it's the wrong club for the wrong shot. You might get to the green at the end of the day, but you're going to look like a bit of a clown and it's going to be hard work. Um, so commercial will be the same. You know, you could you could invest in commercial, but you're going to pay more tax and it's not the right asset for the right time and right stage of life. Uh, and you've got to think about leverage too. So uh, leverage and risk. So uh, residential is less risk because, you know, it's a necessity and that le level of income is going to be the vacancy rates lower, et cetera, et cetera albeit you've got to pay for a, a lot more expenses. Um, and then leverage. I can leverage to 95% with Resi, whereas I need a much larger deposit. I can leverage to 70% if I want direct commercial. So um, particularly for someone that is in the phase of wealth accumulation, which is really build your asset base, then leverage makes the big a big difference. So even mathematically, when you look at two, even if you said, look, commercial is going to give me a 2% better return, if you've got much greater leverage, mathematically, that's going to do most of the heavy lifting for you as opposed to just chasing that yield or return. Well, there's the thing because yield, the rental income doesn't compound, you know, and yep. you're paying tax on it as you get it. And I like the idea of investing my future tax liability, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Why, why give it to the government today when yeah. you can give it to them in 20 years' time and, and make some money off it in the meantime? As long as you've obviously got yep. the income to support that. And I, I think why, where a lot of people approach property, and I, I agree with you, Chris, I come across a lot of people too, yeah, they're earning good money, and I'm like, why are you focusing on income? Oh, because, you know, it's, it's not a good investment if it's not giving me good income. I'm like, yeah, but you're not looking at the investment the right way around. You know, like the investing side is the thing that makes you the wealth not the actual income is the capital growth but um and then with i think with commercial people say you know some people that have invested quite a bit in residential property get to the point where they think okay well i need to do something i need to ramp it up you know i need to oh, i need to go and develop or i need to go into commercial you know like resi's boring you know that's <laughs> just like what everyone's doing um you know is that fair like is it fair that is it sensible or is it just is it expected that that's the way certain people think but is there a, a logic behind that do you think look i think the logic is i'm getting out of bed every morning to earn an income and if i want to replace my income i need an asset that's going to give me a bunch of income um so i think that's the logic and yes that look that's true if you could go and buy an asset and it's going to give you hundred, two hundred thousand dollars of income each year, sure, you don't need to go to work anymore. That's a fantastic outcome. But really what I would um, 
The, the first response, I, w- I would make two responses. The first one is look at overall return. Don't be so focused on income because what you might get in income, you might give away uh, a lot more in capital growth, particularly compounding over a long period of time. So if we really understand how returns compound, you know, you might be ending up going with what you think is a relatively comparable investment option, but over a 20-year period, you end up with half the wealth, you know, so really understand the components of the return. And then secondly, understand that uh, if you're going to have financial freedom, you don't necessarily need to have all that return in income. Yeah. So, for example, if I had uh, half a million dollars of cash in the bank, so I'm quite liquid, and then I've got $10 million of residential property, and that residential property is increasing by 10%, a million dollars each year. If I'm spending, let's say, 200 grand a year, that's what I need to live. Um, well, uh, ignoring uh, the cash impact, my, my assets are rising by uh, a million and I'm spending 200, so I'm still 800 grand in front. Yeah. I can live as long as I want. My only problem is then liquidity. Mm. Okay, so I've got some cash in the bank and I can use that and then gradually I'll need to work out what my asset, how my asset allocation needs to change, so that I've got that liquidity to keep spending the two hundred thousand. So really, that compounding capital growth is the easiest way to really fund or replace your um, employment income, uh, and the best way to get that, or the easiest way to get there, just like using a driver when teeing off for golf, is that compounding capital growth. Yeah. So really, what you want is you focus on what is the optimal split for my stage of life between income and growth and that'll educate you in what the right sort of asset classes are in terms of where you should be focusing. I think you're so right. I think the mental accounting problem that we have is that um, we have to live off income. So, you know, I have to have these assets produce this rent for me or these dividends and Mm. that's all I can live off. And if I need 100 grand and I've only got 50 grand coming from dividends and um, interest and uh, rent, then I need to buy things that will give me more income. But the reality is it's forgetting Mm. that you don't have to live off that. You can live off savings. You can live off selling down your portfolio. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of people think is they forget about, let's just get build an asset base. Let's create options and and assets that we can potentially sell. And, um, yeah, maybe I'll get part of my income in retirement from a commercial property. Maybe that gives me 30 grand a year. Maybe I'll get 20 grand a year from dividends on a share portfolio. Maybe that extra 50, 100 grand a year of income that I need, I'll sell down assets. You know, I'll sell down a property here and there. I'll use my super fund first. I'll deplete that asset. I'll downsize my home. That'll free up another asset base. Um, And I think a lot of people, even like using things like offset accounts, like, and, you know, making sure when you get to retirement, you've got a big debt against your home and a lot of money in the offset accounts. That's another. You can basically use the equity in your home to live off in retirement. Like it's, it's a lot of people forget about that even as a strategy. And they're so fixated on this, I want to retire at 65 with 100 grand of, of passive income that they forget that to do that, they've got to potentially buy poor assets um, or structure their portfolio that's not going to work over the next 20, 30 years. If I build an a asset base in residential as, a, as a, like a primary first step and then do nothing else beyond that, Maybe the worst case scenario is by the time I get to 60 or 65, I sell one or two investment properties and put a whole bunch of cash in the bank and I'm fine. That's That might be the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is I build an asset base in resi first and then gradually as I get closer to retirement age, I might then introduce commercial You know, at that point. And then I can balance out in my portfolio a combination of income and growth. And maybe then I can ramp up the income profile together with then taking a, a, yeah. a a super pension, maybe that gets me closer to where I need to be as opposed to starting off with the whole income thing in in mind. Yeah, so so bang on, totally agree. Absolutely. So you've got this point where, um, yeah, at some point you cap out with um, residential property unless you're going to get significant future wage increases, which means more borrowing capacity. You can't pay off the mortgages fast enough to release enough capacity to keep on buying resi. And yep. so at some point you say, look, I'm going to keep paying my mortgages off, particularly my home, but I'm not going to be able to buy another resi property unless I get a big salary increase. And so at this point here, it's, you know, okay, well, it's, I've, I've capped out on resi. I've already capping out my super because you can only put a limited amount into super and people, that's really easy to cap out on now. And so this is the point where you start to say, well, what's my shift is? I'm going to get, start buying shares. I'm going to build up, you know, another asset base that I can sell down. Maybe I should consider selling a resi to buy a commercial and pay off my home and, and things like that. So you start getting a bit smarter, but you, 
you know, in those initial years, I think you just got to focus on using what your options you've got is leveraging your cash into something like Resi, build an asset base and then look at commercial when you get to a stage of life when you're going to need more income. Um, and But just be really careful with it. You know, don't just focus on trying to replace your income straight away. Just focus on, you know, using different asset bases. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, and syndication is a good way to do that because yeah. we can we can make investments in smaller amounts. You know, if I if I think an investment grade commercial asset, a direct one is going to cost me a couple of million dollars. That's a very lumpy asset. Mm. Uh, whereas if I can invest two or three hundred thousand in a unlisted syndicate, you know, I can start to do that by stages and maybe you know accumulate three or four of those investments over a period of time and really rebalance the income and in growth in my uh, investment. Uh, profile, but um, I mean, the, a bit of a word of warning with those syndicates, though, is that you know there's a lot. There, there are quite a few of them out there, um, and a lot of them I wouldn't go anywhere near. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a big be my difference. Next question: How yeah, okay, do you good. find a good one, and then how do you <laughs> the how do you work can be it? quite extraordinary <laughs> on them. Um, the, the cost to get in, the cost to exit, the management cost. Um, funds under advice costs, mm. all these other fees can really eat into your return if, you know, they don't get capital growth and if they're only getting income and it gets eaten away by fees and tax. And, you know, they, they, they can commit the same crimes that um, financial planners have over the last 30 years and become very transactional um, rather than, you know, investment or relationship style business. And, and that's, to my mind, the biggest risk is that you find people that are trying to put a property or buy, go and buy a property and syndicate it just because they're keen to do a transaction, not because they're keen to build a relationship and build wealth for their clients. Yeah. Uh, now, that's a difficult thing to kind of test, if you like, but that's the thing to look out for is, you know, what's going on. So, a lot of these um, these syndicates and even the large REITs to, some, to, to a big extent, in fact, will have acquisition managers mm. and they'll go and find the, the properties to buy. They'll do the due diligence, feasibility, et cetera, et cetera. But they've got no skin in the game, right? Mm. They don't really care. They're, they're rewarded and remunerated on how many deals they can get away. Uh, and as long as they can make the deal, you know, put some lipstick on a pig and make the deal look as attractive as possible, um, then they bank their bonus this year. And by the time that you, the investor, uh, come to reap the rewards, they're long gone. They're on to their next role or next, next few roles. So, you know, I think that's something to be really... Um, uh, really focused on who's making decisions, who's running the business. Do they have? Can they articulate their investment strategy? Um, and one of the really big things I think is how often do they do transactions? Because what you want to see from a commercial manager is that they might have a very busy year, and then that could be followed by two years where they've only done one transaction, for instance. And that will give you commercially. There's a might be a pressure within the business to keep doing transactions month after month. Mm. But, but because commercial is quite cyclical, cyclical, sorry, there will be a period of time where there's like three or four opportunities. I know from my experience, three or four opportunities that are fantastic all at the same time, mm. you know, and, uh, and then there'll be like maybe a year period where the sales are just so ridiculous, you don't want to compete in that market. And so you don't, don't go anywhere near it. Whereas if someone's doing transactions every month or consistently every year a certain volume, that's a red flag for me because I'm only going to be able to do that if I compromise. And so you, you obviously don't want to deal with someone that's prepared to make a compromise on your investment. It sounds there's so many synergies with choosing a buyer's agent, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yep. you know, because the proof is in the pudding, but you're not going to actually put 
you know, spoon in that pudding for a good five, ten years, and then you go, oh yeah. shit, it's a fizzer. Um, yep. Or yep. it's actually really good. There was a good methodology that they've used, and you know, and it's evidence based, as we're talking about. So yep. with commercial, it's even more complicated because, look, let's face it, the banks view it as riskier because that's why they won't lend as much money on it. I mean, that's sort of that's proof in that pudding. Um, and then, and that can vary quite dramatically. We've had clients buy childcare centres um, in the last twelve months. We were not uh, all for it. Uh, they came to us after they sort of were so sold on the idea and I'm like, no, I don't think. But, you know, we try to shop around banks and, you know, banks want, you know, worried about childcare centres. It's in the height of COVID. We're only lend 50% on it. Um, and, you know, that can change. Sometimes it'll be 60%, sometimes it's 70%. There's review terms in the contract where they can change LVRs and, you know, and change rates and you have to then well, go shop. That's risky. Yeah, there's lots <laughs> of things that can sort of happen around lending that's completely different to residential. And, um you know, that if those, they will, for example, another client's got a big commercial place, um, he's doing like casual leases and, you know, he can't refinance it. And then the banks are offering him a pretty poor rate, but to leave, he can't go to another bank. So you just got to really understand the, the lending side of it um, because it is always shifting and it can go in your favour sometimes. Maybe that, that area of, that you're investing um, is more favourable to the banks. They're not as concerned. So you bought it when not many people could buy it, but then you know, uh, LVRs went up, for example, but they can go the other way. Stuart, when do you look at commercial? Obviously, you've got the retirees, uh, syndicates, people who want that income and, you know, whether they go a syndicate or they buy direct assets. What about for someone in more of the accumulation stage? Would there be any times you'd consider it, let's just say a self-employed person who's got a decent whack in super, would you, you know, consider them buying something in their super fund and you know, paying rent to themselves in, a, in their super fund or do you, are you still a bit apprehensive on that strategy as well? If it's an owner-occupier asset, so that is if they're going to run their business from it, um, then there's two questions I ask myself. Does it otherwise make a really good mm. investment? So would I be investing in this asset if my client wasn't running the business? Because they might not. They might not in the future. Uh, and then the second question is, is there any goodwill associated with that location? So, for example, a lot of dentists will go and buy their practice premises because it's an a com old converted residential house on a corner, you know, block. Of the, every, it's been a dentist there for the last 30 years. Everyone knows that everyone comes mm. to it. Uh, and then when a dentist fits out of uh, their practice, you know, they end up paying through the nose for that. Uh, and so there's a lot, of, a lot of money invested in it, And in which case then you go, yeah, okay, I can understand, get the value proposition why I want to own that asset. So if there's some goodwill associated with it, yeah, I'm, I can get my head around it. I'm pretty much on board. Um, but if there's not and it doesn't make an otherwise good investment, then I just don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket because what will end up happening is they're earning their income 100% of the income from this one business and now what they've done is invested 100% of their super in this mm. one business as yeah, well. It's mm. true. And if that business is to fail, they're kind of all in. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Look, sometimes business people look at, at rental as, as um, just dumb money, wasted money. I'm in the office I'm sitting in now, uh, you know, Brosolish is nearly 20 years old. I've been paying rent that whole time. I don't think I'll ever go and buy a floor of an office building in in the Melbourne CBD. I can do other things with my money uh, and and I don't want to invest so much in my business. I've already got a lot of, a lot of, a lot of invested in it anyway. So, uh, yeah, you've got to be careful, I think, with unoccupied yeah. property and that, that mentality that rent money is dead money is not true. It allows you what you should be doing if you're self-employed employed is really building wealth in assets that have no link with your business so that if it is to blow up one day, well, at least you've got this asset pool to, to sort of fall back on. I think it's a really interesting point. So if you did have like a, you know, a vet um, and they wanted to buy like a high street shop and they've already established business in that location and they've already got that goodwill and they're just going to move to this new location or they've been renting there for five, 10 years. And so the, the chance of that business failing is pretty small. Um, and they're quite passionate about what they do and they want to stay in it. Um, they've got like a succession plan, et cetera. Um, and then they can see that, you know, in 20 years' time that it's always going to be a need for a vet in that high street and there's no other place that's going to get built. So then, yeah, maybe it could be, a, you know, a great little investment for them. But, you know, what happens if the business wants to grow? Like what happens if you want to go from five vets mm. to 50 vets? Um, probably yep. not enough dogs in the area, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like it needs to be that the growth of the business can, you know, because – you know, a lot of people don't underestimate how the, the growth of the business could mm. be. 
And they think, well, I've only grown from three staff to 10 staff in the last seven years. And then all of a sudden you could be 30 staff in two years time and you're outgrowing your space. Um, we saw that with a, you know, an architect practice that wanted to buy a commercial place. You know, they, all of a sudden they're boomed. Um, the, the commercial space they were going to buy last year wouldn't have survived. You know, they, they decided not to do it because they could see their, their, their business was growing. Um, and, you know, they realised that it was only going to give them such a short runway. So it was a bit pointless buying it. Why don't we just rent it till we're at this peak of our growth cycle? So um, I think, yeah, I do think a lot, a lot of accountants will, you know, put them into that sort of frame of thinking. You know, you've got your super farm. Why don't you get it away from that low, that fund that's not performing? And why don't we buy you a commercial property in a self-managed super fund so they can manage it? Um, but I just don't know if it's really suitable to a lot of business owners. I think, like you say, I want to de-risk. I want to keep my super pot, I want to keep my personal assets, and then I want to um, keep flexibility around my business. Yeah, spot on. I think it's an easy sell for an accountant, of course, because mm. <laughs> there's some benefits. You can, you know, try and shift more money into super. You've then got control over your super, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right, Chris, it's just another product to sell for an accountant, which is a, a really, uh, I guess, um, critical or mean thing to say, but really at the end of the day, these decisions are more financial planning than they are tax related. Uh, Just because there's some tax consequences doesn't mean tax should drive it. Uh, And really at the end of the day, trying to invest in a way that's not linked to your business, I think is the number one thing. And the one thing I think self-employed people just don't do very well is carve off a little bit of profit each year. Absolutely. or a lot of profit each year yeah. and invest it and invest it wisely. They end up spending toil away, have some really great years, mm-hmm. reinvest it back in the business and wake up 20 years later and realize their industry has changed and they've got nothing to show for it, which is a real shame, of course. I couldn't agree more with you. They, the self-employed people that are doing well financially, um, they come to us and I feel like they've just missed a huge opportunity and, um, you know, they haven't geared up. They've been so invested in the business. They're risk takers. They've started a business. They've grown a business. But when they come to their personal finances, they the, you know, usually sit on their hands more than you know, the average punter who's working because they, they take risks because they've got to build an asset base. And you know, yes, they might get this big saleable event, but then they get all this cash and it's like, well, what do I do with it? I haven't got an income now. I can't really go and leverage my income because I haven't got any. And so I do think that um, yeah, those business owners who are also thinking about growing their personal wealth outside their business while they're still in the business and enjoying it, they're the ones that... Um, you know, yeah, we, we, but it's quite rare to be honest. I actually see most people who are doing well in business, they become really conservative in their personal life. Yeah, yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Uh, same too, maybe their, their fear their, their fear is that they've got now that they've got something to lose, whereas yeah. when they started yeah. the business, they, they had nothing to lose. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, potentially yeah. it's outside the comfort zone as well. I mean, they're good at what they do. You know, they're, they're good at creating a business, creating a market, you know, that sort of entrepreneurial side of things. You know, if you're going to apply that sort of thinking into property, then you start going into the property development side of things or the flipping and, you know what I mean, that sort of mentality isn't about you set and forget, which is what really a great residential um, property strategy is. I love set and forget. Um, yep. Little tweaks. You're right, you're right, right there as well. Sometimes the people do you know very well in business, so their brain can be quite highly geared, right, and then mm. they start to uh, apply some of the complex things that they would do in their business to their property portfolio. We have a very successful business, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars of profit, and they came to us, and they were going to all these weird stuff around residential um, and commercial, and they were like, <laughs> We can, you know, pay for some of that from our business and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, you're buying poor assets. You've gone and bought, you know, all these millions of dollars of poor assets. They're not going to grow. And then we're able to shift them and we're saying, well, let's just buy, you know, a fewer number of quality assets. And over the last few years, we've bought, you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars. But, you know, you're right. They've, they had to change track. They went from, you know, let's do something complex. Let's do something boring. Let's focus all our energy on our business where we get better bang for buck. And let's go simple on our investment portfolio and buy really high-quality, low-risk residential assets. Um, and it's, it's interesting watching people self-employed, you know, tinkering all the time, but then they come to their investment portfolio and they completely stuff it up. Overcomplicate <laughs> it. But yeah. back, back to commercial as well, though. I mean, this is the other thing too. So with the commercial, say you've got an office building, say it's a, a retail um, shop, that fit-out is on the tenant. So apart from the fact that the tenants pay for all the outgoings, they, they basically rent a shell and then they've got to fit it out and they've got to give it back to you as a shell. So I always yep. find that a bit a bit interesting just to, in terms of what value is there in a fit out and, um, you know, 
for me, I, that'd be where I want to be a bit more creative in keeping that tenants fit out <laughs> rather than having them having to get rid of it when they move out. So the um, the firm that we use uh, that you know we, we invest our clients' monies with um, they they in house uh, property management uh, uh, quite a few years ago five or six years ago um, and the reason I mean it's it's got some uh, comparisons I guess to residential property management in that it, it was it looked it was looked at as a bit of a cost center you know let's try and minimize the cost and so forth. But they, if you really appreciate where the value is in a office building, it is by retaining the tenant mm. and it is by increasing the tenant's rent each year um, and then increasing it with each new lease renewal. And so the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you build a really strong relationship with your tenant uh, and you deal with any potential issues during that tenancy agreement as well. Um, and I know myself, I mean, the, the building that uh, I've always, or that we've been in for nearly seven or eight years, the, the management's quite poor, to be honest. Mm. You never really hear from them. If something goes wrong, they'll fix it. But, you know, they're, so they're not terrible, but they're not great. Um, uh, whereas if you can get the tenant to spend some money and and make your, um, you know, make, make your building look better, uh, well, then often landlord will make a contribution in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but also there's some benefits there. And as I understand it, I think that it, when you leave and then you've got to make good, so you've got to rip out everything, it's because then they can claim the depreciation. So the, the, the <laughs> landlord can claim the depreciation. Right. Because I've never quite understood the whole make good clause. Why would you want me to rip everything? I remember an office we had, we ripped all the data cabling and all that sort of stuff out because they insisted on it. But hang on, wouldn't someone, <laughs> someone's just going to come in and reproduce I all know. that cabling again? It doesn't make sense. And it wasn't until later on uh, I realised that uh, talking to another commercial agent, that that's that's the reason why they get to claim the depreciation. Yeah. So even when you look at, you know, if you go and buy, if you look at the attributes, the tax attributes of an investment like that, if you go and buy a, a an office building, something that's been unloved, poorly managed, that needs the the atrium needs to be redone, you know, maybe the lifts need to be refurbished, these sorts of things, uh, you can do that, and it have a it has a tremendous impact on rental yield income, mm. lease period, all those sorts of things. But the benefit from a investor is that you get an income return. So you might get 4%. That's a physical income payment to you. But the tax distribution is different. The tax distribution might be zero because they've got all the depreciation benefits. Whereas if you've used debt to go and buy that investment, you still get to deduct your interest. So I get a, a tax refund because on a, on a tax basis, I've made a loss. But on a physical cash flow basis, I've got the four percent income plus my tax plus my interest deduction. Sorry, as a tax refund, uh, that the cash flow impact, even for a person that's not you know that that's in a, an accumulator sort of mindset, still can be really strong. So even understanding the attributes and how the investment behaves. Now I'm not. Uh, trying to encourage anyone to make tax-based decisions, <laughs> but it's just icing on the cake, you know, mm. from from that asset. I'm spending money on an asset that's actually going to increase the asset's value. That's good enough. Yep. But then if I also get a tax benefit on top of that, that's even, even better. Yeah. Well, it's the same as negative gearing, you know, like it's, yep. you know, should never be the reason to, to purchase a property. It's interesting because, you know, I, I often say it takes a village to buy a property. You know, yep. it, it does. You know, you're talking about the tax um, advice you get from an account, but if you use that solely, you, you're forgetting a whole bunch of other things that you need to be considering. So you need a good financial planner, then you need a good buyer's agent, whether it be for commercial or for for uh, residential. And, you know, the commercial space is an interesting Wild West space, I think. A lot of the – there's not a huge amount of buyer's agents out there in the commercial space, and even then they've – really want someone who's been around for a long time with a really incredible track record but you know so therefore a lot of people actually turn to sales agents to actually yeah. help them buy an asset and then it, yeah you know it's like well that's ah oh. and yeah. i know what sales agents are like and they can be great and they can be you know very informative at the end of the day they're still selling something so you yeah. know what i mean yeah. it's really really difficult to get good advice in this space yeah, I mean, we, the commercial space is definitely, there's not many buyers agents. If you type it into Google, commercial buyers agents, there's not. I mean, there's a few companies that have popped up in recent years that have um, had great marketing and have got great publicity and um, have, you know, been able to get in front of a lot of people that are younger. Mm. Um, yeah. And 
I think it's become a bit of a cool thing, you know, property negative gearing, a positive cash flow, buying commercial. And I, I do sort of get, I think some of the stuff they're buying, you know, in terms of regional locations mm. and high yields. And, you know, I just, I wonder, I think Scott Keck, um, he's the chairman of a company called Charter Keck um, Kramer. And they do lots of like research on, um, you know, in the residential market, industrial offices, et cetera. And I watched a presentation from him once and he was just saying, look, the commercial space is, you know, you do not play in there unless you've got multiple millions of dollars. You've got lots of experience. You're just going to get eaten up because, uh, you know, people, you just too many mistakes, too many variables. It's too much risk for mm. you to know what to do and you're just going to make a wrong decision. And so it's just the price point and the experience you need is so much further than residential. And he's, that was his sort of belief is that most people shouldn't go anywhere near it because the market will just teach you a lesson. And, um, you know, when the, one of the biggest guys in property is saying that, I think it's something for people just to take notice that um, it's a place that you just don't want to – if you go wrong, you lose a million dollars of your assets uh, when you're younger. Compounding that over the next 30 years is a big deal. If you lose a million dollars of your asset and you've got $10 million and you're in your 60s, you're probably going to be okay. And so I think that's another risk with it is you, mm. you make a bad call when you should be trying to grow your assets and take less risk when you're younger. You know, Warren Buffett, Buffett you know, don't lose money. I think you've got to have that <laughs> philosophy when you're younger is try to grow your wealth, but don't go and lose a lot of cash. Same with crypto at the moment, for example. Um, oh, you yeah. just don't have these big reductions in asset base. I think people just assume they understand commercial property that's just sort of got the same sort of drivers as residential. I think they yeah. just think it's a yeah. building. It's the same as a house. Yeah. It's just I like get more rent, you know. Yep. <laughs> just like yep. no, it's not. It's a very, very different proposition. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't invest in it. I, I wouldn't invest my clients' money in it if I didn't have the sin. No, maybe I'll say that differently. I wouldn't invest nearly as much of my clients' money as if I didn't have that syndicated option because I've got to know the guys that run that business really well. You get to understand the idiosyncrasies with different assets that they might do due diligence on 40 deals mm. before they actually get one away and there might be just something totally minor with one of the deals that, and they decide not to proceed with yeah. it. You just don't learn. I mean, they're in yeah. that market every day of the week. You know, it's a like any industry, it's relatively small once you get to know it. So you know what other people are buying, what's gone wrong, what's gone right, all those sorts of things. Yep. Uh, that transparency uh, and experience, I should say, uh, most importantly, uh, really does reduce investment risk. Yep. The so, only people you're putting yeah. into that, that's Jewel, would be the retirees that are um, looking for income. So maybe in their self-managed super funds and tax-free rent or maybe the 50-plus business owner who's sold out or the early retiree that's built an asset base and is retiring early. Is that sort of the only people you're considering for those syndications? No, uh, people that are probably maxed out on residential, which is not to say that they can't right. afford to buy any more residential, but yeah. um, they've got enough of an asset base in residential. As soon as possible, I will then, uh, as a general rule, uh, try and introduce some commercial into their portfolio. Yeah. So for one more recent transaction, I think the youngest client would have been mid to late 30s, I think probably late 30s. He is actually probably the youngest client uh, that has done it to date. But really, uh, clients are mostly in their, their 40s and 50s yeah. uh, that are investing. I've been investing in it for, I don't know, seven, eight years. So, you know, early 40s I started. Um, and they sort uh, of going yeah. like 50 grand, 100 grand sort of thing? Like that's sort of the… Uh, 250 to 500. Okay. Yeah, so in larger larger blocks. I mean, it really depends on the asset. You know, some yeah. assets… Uh, uh, some assets look uh, low risk and boring and some assets look a little bit more exciting from a yep. returns perspective. So it really does depend on what asset you're looking at. But uh, I think it, you know, the longer you hold these assets too, like they might start off with a 4% yield on original investment amount, but by the time they they do what they need to do in terms of refurbishment, improvement of management, et cetera, et cetera. There's one I looked at uh, uh, the other day. It was uh, seven years old. On original investment, it's yielding 8% mm -hmm. in, in yeah. terms of return. That's on original investment, of course, on a current market value, it's it's uh, you know closer to four. Uh, but, you know, that, that at the end of the day, that original investment amount is the most important aspect, right? Because yeah. that's, what, that's what I put in yeah. and, 
you know, from a cash flow perspective. So the longer you keep those assets and the earlier that you do them, the more income they're going to throw off uh, over time. How, how do yeah. you assess, what's your sort of marker for, you know, enough or the right amount of residential in a portfolio? Look, I think it depends on goals, uh, situation, income, risk ap appetite. You know, I don't know if there's one size fits all. Um, but really what I want to be able to do is have enough residential and super and then whatever other assets, whether it's a share portfolio outside super, to fund retirement. And the, the commercial is really then just the icing on the cake. Mm. It will go in addition to, and because it's not negative cash flow, because it will contribute cash flow, mm. I don't need to have that problem with, you know, if I add another residential property, sure, long-term capital growth rate-wise, in a 20-year period, I'm well affront, no, no, no dramas, but every time I borrow more debt, <laughs> I get further away from having that flexibility in terms of what I want to do with my employment income. Whereas uh, if I'm making an investment that's positive cash flow, I don't have that payoff. And you are right. I mean, especially if you get to a point where You've got a lot of resi, you've over leveraged into resi and then you can't refinance your loans, you can't get interest only extensions, um, et cetera. You can very quickly get to a point where your outgoings really start to uh, hammer home, right? And you start to have to pay off your home, but you also have to pay off three, $4 million of investment properties because you can't get interest only, et cetera. So you can definitely over leverage into resi um, by not thinking through your, your ability to refinance in the future. What I, yep. what I yep. see is too many people over-leveraging into shit, Resi. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, I can't yeah. afford a good one, so, but I've got to buy more, yeah. I've got to buy more. It's like, oh, please, stop I think doing it's definitely it. the it, – well, I literally stopped a client today. Um, you know, he had four properties and, you know, three investment properties and a house he needs to do a reno on. And, um, you know, his thought line of thinking when he came to me was, let's buy another one. Um and I sort of just stopped and said, look, I don't think this makes sense. You're going to buy us, you know, you've already got three that are pretty average and we talked about and he agreed. And you're going to go and buy another one. Um, and, you know, what we were stopping was the capital gains tax, um, uh. just getting over it. And I sort of kind of, we sort of did some rough numbers, what it could be. And I said, look, yes, you're going to lose that money. But that's probably the growth that's happened in the last couple of years because of low interest rates mm. um, and, you know, headwinds with higher interest rates. And it's actually a good time to do this. Uh, and you're going to get into, and you're in your 30s, um, you've got a lot of living to do. So, you know, it's just because it's easy, it's a hard thing to do. Once you've started to buy a few properties, mm. it's a hard thing to go through the mental process of selling two or three. So, you just keep on adding, you know, poor properties because that's all you can do. Loss aversion. So, so I said um, there's never a bad time to buy a really good quality residential asset. And similarly, there's never a bad time to sell a shit asset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, he hasn't lost the money. He's already lost the money. It's unrealized gain. He's never going to get out of paying the CGT. <laughs> That's it. Unless the assets, uh, unless the price of his assets fall mm. and you don't want to be wishing for that. So no. it's already a liability. Just make friends with it. Take your money and run and move on. I know. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, money's net. You can't run away from CGT. GT, but if it allows you to run away into a better asset, um, yep. yeah, yeah. Which is, that, yep. you know, that's what we started seeing that, or was it about 2016, that, that these people holding these dud assets, that, that they've been able to forget about, oh, you know, that apartment in Brisbane, that place in Toowoomba, <laughs> you know, <laughs> doesn't matter. It's not hurting yeah. me. And all of a sudden, they can't upgrade my home because I've got these dud assets. It's like, good. And let's just yeah. get rid of them. But anyway, yeah. not, sometimes easier said than done. So, Stuart, on that note, do you have a Dumbo for us? I do. And I thought um, I thought a bit about this one. I thought I'd make it a commercial Dumbo. Yeah. So, uh, over the last 20 years, every now and again, I come across a client that has bought a Strata commercial office. And, and so, you'll get these office, um, well, these developers really is probably best uh, to call them. Um, and they will go and refurb a building and uh, then... Uh, break the floors up into 10 individual small offices to appeal to really small businesses, one or two man bands, those sorts of things. And then they'll go and flog them to investors at, at very high prices. And the the theme, the investment theme, and they might even throw a rental guarantee in there for a couple of years, but the theme is, look, nice high yield and look, you've got an office on Collins Street or it'll be Little Collins, you know, it won't be <laughs> right on Collins, it'll be somewhere else. Uh, and it really does appeal to that investor that's uh, dazzled by the income that we've just sort of spoken about. And they are probably some of the worst investments that you could ever possibly make. So that's my uh, 
my Dumbo for today is steer clear of strata, office, those smaller sort of, okay, 50 square metre kind of office sort of situations. They're often what those self-managed super funds, <laughs> you know, those those small little firms buy them in their self-managed super fund. I've come across that quite a lot of times yeah. over the years. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I rented one when I started ProSolution back in 02. Uh, I reckon, I know exactly where it is, uh, I reckon that office would be worth exactly the same yep. as it is today, which I shouldn't laugh because some poor investors has been mm. gutted uh, as a result. But anyway, lesson learned. Well, it's uh, the, and that's the thing, isn't it? The same as like buying an apartment in Docklands, sort of the yeah. same sort of situation, right? Uh, yeah. You know, buying a small apartment, buying a small office, you're um, – yeah, these are real people and that's just so mm. true. It's like people who have actually gone and made those decisions and had huge opportunity costs. That's why we educate people is to stop them making these decisions. So, um, yeah, that's why we love the Dumbos. So Thanks you. so much for coming on, Stuart. <laughs> it's um, always good. I think the commercial things we haven't covered and I mm. do think it's been a bit of an elephant in the room for us not to cover that because um, it's, it's sometimes a lot of people are thinking about it, especially because of the media behind um how easy it is to make money in commercial property, but there's so <laughs> many risks and stage of life factors to, to factor in on top of that. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's always good, Stuart. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. (laughs) 